Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today, get ready to groove. We are going to be hearing about songwriters from the 1970s. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to check out any of our other content that's not featured, head over to nam.org library. And welcome back to another fun episode. Uh, Like Mike said, we are about to get uh, groovy here and and listen to some amazing songwriters from the 1970s, which includes uh, songwriters like Charlie Daniels, Jose Feliciano, Charles Wright, Andy Frazier, Allie Willis, Harry Casey of Casey and the Sunshine Band, and uh, of course, we couldn't not cover Gamble and Huff, so Kenneth Gamble and Leon Huff. Uh, I mean, if you think of 70s and you think of songwriting, you're going to think of them. I can't even begin to list all of the amazing songs that they wrote, but it's a lot of them. (laughs) I'm going to let Dan go and start listing off some of them. Well, what an amazing opportunity this is uh, to start with Gamble and Huff. I mean, basically two guys created what we now refer to as the Philadelphia sound. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Songwriting Hall of Fame, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, I think they had 175 gold or platinum albums that they either wrote or produced. Unbelievable. In fact, when we do a producer's podcast, we'll have to uh, have these guys back again because there's a whole other part of their career that we're not going to be covering today. Um, For the Love of Money, OJs, one of my favorite. Love Train by the OJs. Oh, my gosh. And, of course, me and Mrs. Jones, uh, Billy Paul, 1972, I think that came out. Um, Expressway of Your Heart. of your heart. Yeah, um, I think that was the Soul Survivors uh, back in the 60s. That was one of their first ones. And um, for the Slow Jam, of course, if you don't know me by now, by <laughs> Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. Oh my gosh, is that ever an awesome tune? That's just a few of them. So um, start humming those in your head, you guys, as uh, we get started with this podcast. So let's jump right into the 2013 NAM Oral History interview with Kenneth Gamble and Leon Huff. They are going to be talking about how their passion for music and songwriting developed and how their career got off to a great start. Well, let's get going, see what sort of fun we can have together, you guys. I appreciate you taking the time for me. Mm-hmm. One of the things that is of interest to us is just to trace a little bit of your passion for music and... Um, you know, how you saw it develop in your, in your life. Did you have a lot of music in your home when you were growing up? Uh, not me. I mean, just a little. Not a, not a whole lot hmm. of music in my, my home. You know, pretty much uh, the radio was a source of, uh, of music coming into my house. Yeah. And we listened to radio every day. Who All were, day. <laughs> who hmm. were you influenced by as a kid? Music-wise, um... 
probably around like Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers and Lil' Anthony and the Imperials, the Dells, the Flamingos, and mm-hmm. you know, all those people from like the 50s. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they were uh, significant. Sam Cooke, Jackie Wilson, you know, those kinds of artists, you know, they, that's the artists that they play pretty much on, on the radio. And now, how did you get into music? Did you start playing an instrument? Not really, no. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, I think my gifts were. I used to write a lot of poetry when I was younger, and um, and it came out. You know that that's pretty much what I was good at doing. Hmm. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, maybe we can get you caught up. Did you also have music in your house when you were a kid? Yeah, had a lot of music coming from my mother. Hmm. She played piano. And the piano was in my house. She she all bought she bought records too, so it was a lot of lot of a uh, lot of music flowing through my house. Mm. You know, on Sundays it was gospel music, and we would listen to the basically the same stations Gamma was listening to over here in Philly, because <laughs> I was from from Camden, oh, okay. New Jersey. But uh, basically the same radio stations and the same music. But I admired it. As a, I developed into a musician, so I started playing piano by ear. And uh, I started playing piano like about five, six years old. Is that right? Yeah, so I developed pretty good. But the guy I was listening to was uh, Little Richard. <laughs> mm-hmm. Little When I first heard Little Richard and seen Little Richard perform with that band he had called the Upsetters, I was... I was in awe of the way he played. Mm. He played with passion. And um, I sort of, sort of like, sort of like geared toward the way Richard played you know, and, he's, uh, and the band he had. So I got really interested in music that way. That's fantastic. As a piano player. Even though I admired a lot of keyboard players, but the guy I was looking at was Little Richard when he come out with Rip It Up and Good Golly Miss Molly and uh, The Girl Can't Help It. I mean, those were fantastic records. And the band that was playing that music was phenomenal. The Upsetters. I guess most of the musicians that knew about that era heard of The Upsetters. And I think James Brown used to use some of The Upsetters when he first started out. Fantastic musician, rhythm section. And... uh, that developed into me wanting to be a studio musician. So it grew into that, and um, I played sessions in New York, Phil Spector and Leroy Stroller. So I had a good, good experience as a studio musician. And then um, I always wanted to write songs too. Like Gamma said, he was like into words. I was into music, the melodies and rhythms, just playing the piano. Hmm. And then, um, just kept developing to the day I made Gamble. That's fantastic. What were some of the sessions that you were on in your early part of your career? Well, the the first time I went into the studio, I I really produced a record. I wrote the song called Mixed Up Shook Up Girl by Patty and the Emblems. And uh, that was the first, very first time I had full control of the studio. A guy named Leroy Lovett gave me that opportunity Mm. because I wrote the song and I discovered the group. 
he let me do it. He let me go in and put the arrangement and everything, work with the musicians. Very first time I ever did that. That's fantastic. And the record turned out to be top 20 records. So I figured if I can do that, I could do it again. So it just kept developing. And I met Lieber and Stoller, which are favorites of mine. Mm -hmm. And they gave me the opportunity to play on some of their music. So I was back and forth to New York, Phil Spector with the Ronettes. So I was in the middle of that Tin Pan Alley as a, as a piano player. And I, you know, I cherished those opportunities. Wow, it helped me develop. So it's like, uh, it's been music from day one for a minute. Yeah, that is fantastic. So you alluded to the fact that uh, a whole new thing started when you guys met. How did you guys meet? Well, you know, after New York dried up for me, changed and went to L.A., I started playing sessions in Philadelphia. Hmm. Oh, okay. But, you know, I did that, like, on a part-time basis because I had a job. So, you know, it, like, supplement my income, you know, playing sessions and working with bands on the weekend. And um, I had the opportunity to, to be assigned to a production company, Madeira White Productions, who happened to be in the same building Gamble was associated with a gentleman named Jerry Ross who worked on different floors in the same building. It just so happened by coincidence. We ended up on that, that elevator at the same time. And just start conversations. I don't know what we really said, but <laughs> it developed as, to something phenomenal. Sure did, I'll say. Mm -hmm. Did you have like a project in mind that got you guys started or how did it? No, not really. I think I think what really got the Huff and I working together was that we were headed in the same direction. We both wanted to do the same thing, hmm. and uh, and it was a, a person that I could talk to that was in the same situation I was in, you know. And uh, and I think we complemented each other, especially after we got together and started writing. And once we wrote some songs together, we went over Hop's house one Saturday, and um, and we sat down and wrote four or five songs together, like like we had like we had known each other all our lives. You know what I mean? So so that's that's what really made it made it click. It was the music that made it click. That uh, we were able to um, we were able to write songs uh, so fluently together you know and uh, we became very prolific because we we've never stopped writing you know it was great gamble too when I you know I think about it because we, we both started out as songwriters individually so you had to think me as a songwriter I think of the words and then I think of what the melody is and so it's like when you're writing by yourself is a lot so when I met gamble and we sat down and did a spontaneous thing. Words was flowing off Gamble's head like an oil well. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just flowing, like freestyling. So what I said was, yeah, so that took a lot off me. So I, all I could just concentrate on mm -hmm. playing. Yeah, it made it easier. Yeah. Made it easier, you know, because uh, I've had written a few songs, like he said, Mixed Up Shook Up Girl and, and uh, and we working with Jerry Ross. We had written a few songs like Candy and the Kisses, the 81, and Sapphires, Who Do You Love? I was playing guitar a little bit. 
and I knew a few chords on the guitar. Let's see, Gary, you had a guitar when I met you. Yeah, yeah. So I was trying my best to learn how to play that guitar, and uh, and Jerry Ross and um, the guy named Joe Renzetti, Joe Renzetti, who used to play the guitar, and um, I learned a lot from Joe too. But the main person that showed me how to play the guitar was a guy named Herb Johnson. Herb Johnson, um, he had a he had a record out called um, "I'm Guilty," and have you heard? So we we were seeing background for Herb Johnson on some of his shows, and so Herb and I we became good friends, and um, he he taught me how to play the guitar. He taught me about six chords. Then there was a, another guy with us. His name was Roland Chambers, who was a who was a master guitar player. Mm-hmm. And uh, but when Huff and I got together, it took the stress away from me trying to figure out how to play these chords. I didn't have to because Huff was a master master musician, and so it just left me free to <laughs> sing and, and me and Huff to have fun because you're operating from your position of strength. Yeah. You see, instead of trying to figure chords out, because all I have to do is hum something, the Huff and Huff will find it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Huff would go all different places, and I follow him. You know, so so it, it turned it turned out to be uh, uh, something really uh, to be proud of. You know, and uh, you know, you go back all these years, all these songs. You know, so it's it's not something to take lightly. You know, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's did, a blessing, you know. Did you find that a friendship was developing along with the songwriting of partner? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. We we never even stopped to even think about it. Hmm. You know what I mean? It just it hmm. just automatically the same way we were then as the same way we are now. You know, and I, I appreciate that because um, I tell a lot of people. I said Huff, Huff is my friend. I said because because. That's what made Gambling Huff so strong, is our unity and our respect for one another, you understand? And and we still trying to figure out things together. And it's the music, it's the music that we have been able to create that's the proof of everything. You can talk all you want, but the proof of it is, is what can you actually produce and what can you do? And so um, we found um, we found a refuge in one another to be able to put our strengths together, and those strengths helped us wiggle our way through this complicated business mm-hmm. that that really is rough and hard. This is a very competitive industry, and uh, and Huff and I was able to um, to put our talents together, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, that's amazing. So tell me a little bit about how the songs that you wrote were recorded. How did that come about? Well, you know, the um, couple songs that we wrote, we we were at a time when uh, Philadelphia was going through a transition. Because Philadelphia was was a music town. You had American Bandstand here with Dick Clark which was in those days equivalent to MTV or something of that nature because you could go on American Bandstand one day and sell a million records. 
the next day, American with Dick Clark and American Bandstand. And then along with that, you had Cameo Parkway Records, which had Chubby Checker, Dee Dee Sharp, the Orleans, uh, Bobby Rydell, all these people. Then you had Chancellor Records, you had Swan Records, you had Frankie Avalon, Fabian. I mean, so Philadelphia was, uh, was you had Lee Andrews in the Hearts, don't let me forget them. Uh, <laughs> Spaniels. Yeah, the Spaniels. The, I mean, just, just unbelievable amounts of talent here in this city because you had all these outlets. And um, and so Huff and I was trying to get into that circuit a little bit. But for two African-Americans in this city here, man, that was like almost unheard of, you know, as songwriters and producers and whatever, you know. And he um, had a lot of artists, you know, and uh, and also to, to, to be able to make a living. How can, how can you make a, a good deal with somebody not trying to rip you off? You know, and so uh, so Huff and I, we had to figure out a way to do it on our own, to do it on our own, so that we could make the decisions on what we thought was good and what we thought wasn't good, and our music, you know, and so we um, we started writing together, and we wrote songs for the Sapphires. Uh, Jerry Ross was still producing them. Um, we wrote songs for, um, um, well, Huff, Huff wrote a song for even the Candy and the Kisses. It was called Two Happy People, you and Cindy. Cindy. Yeah, Cindy. Mm -hmm. And um, then we had some B-side with uh, the Orleans. Orleans, yeah. And so then, yeah. And then we had, um, we had wrote and produced some songs for Dee Dee Sharp. Yeah. And Chubby Checker. I mean, so we we're starting to get in, but they was on the, that whole company was on its way out, and and then uh, we decided to, um, you know, to uh, to be freelance producers, right? As once, especially once we started to get uh, a couple of good records underneath our belt. And so, what about the publishing? Did you be did you publish your own music at the beginning, or did you have somebody help you with that? Well, yeah, well, we started publishing our own music in the beginning, you know, like uh, Huff was just saying, you know, he worked with Madeira and White. They had a, a company called uh, Double Diamond, I think it was. Yeah. And then Jerry Ross, I was working with Jerry Ross, and he was, you know, publishing the songs and whatever. And then, and then uh, you know, once you start to, to get in there a little bit, you say, look, I want my own publishing, you know what I mean? So you start splitting publishing with people. And so, uh, and then when Huff and I started working together, we created a, a publishing company together. And um, I think I think when you you meet people, I think the the people that really uh, made uh, gambling Huff uh, propel was people like Cal Rudman. Cal Rudman was a was a columnist for uh, Record World, and he had his own tip sheet. And once we met Cal Rudman. And he got involved in, and he really, he really thought the gambling off was really good. Mm -hmm. He promoted us, he pushed us, you know what I mean, in his magazine and, and whatever. And people in the industry started to become aware of gambling off. And, uh, and I think once we got the expressway with the soul survivors and, and Jerry Butler with only the strong survive and cowboys, the girls and, I mean, it all started to click together, 
there was a new music scene in Philadelphia, you know, so, so it was good. So as we continue with the podcast dedicated to the songwriters of the 1970s, um, boy, oh boy, that's a great place to start. Gamble and Huff, uh, without a doubt, one of the most fantastic songwriting teams ever. And in 2013, what a blessing it was for us to uh, capture that interview with them together, uh, which is always a dream when you are hoping to interview songwriters that are known as part of a team. You really want to get both sides of the story and to have that together was extra special. So I'm very grateful that that took place. And we mentioned some of their tunes earlier, but of course, there's a few that we didn't mention. And I really think it's important to uh, point out a very important aspect of their contributions to music. It wasn't just the songs and producing them, but they were really um, focused on messaging. And during the civil rights campaign and um, those things in the early 60s and 70s, they did a lot of work to clean up their neighborhoods and had song programs that would uh, raise money to help with cleaning up the streets and painting houses uh, in Philadelphia. Um, they were also very much a part of African-American pride. Uh, they wrote a song, in fact, called um, Am I Black Enough for You in 1972, which was recorded um, by Billy Paul, who we also know uh, having a huge hit with their other hit, uh, a song called Me and Mrs. Jones. But that particular song, I think, was a really important statement that Gamble and Huff wanted to make, and they have continued to do that throughout their career to provide songs with messaging that was that is important to them. Um, you know, it's really neat. In addition to seeing them for the interview, I um, sat right behind them at a Songwriters Hall of Fame banquet, and uh, Leon turned around, stared right at me, and he says, how do I know you? And I, we only met once, and he knew. I said, well, we only met once when I interviewed you. For Nam. So how cool is that? So you got to love a guy who remembers, what is that, six years difference, uh, one-time visit. Anyway, another great song that those guys wrote um, Well, there's so many, but Only the Strong Survive, which is a song that they wrote that was originally recorded by Jerry Butler. If you don't know that song, 1968, please play it. It's really, really great. Another message song. Um, But you know what? One of those message songs that can be adapted... Uh, For example, Elvis recorded that the next year and had a big hit with it. And then Billy Paul again recorded it, I think, in 1977. So staying power, great message, great song. And then a lot of fun songs, sort of uh, throwaway songs, as they would call them, that weren't necessarily uh, meant to last a long time or have um, important messages. But like uh, the intruders doing Cowboys and Girls, I think I was a kid when that song came out and I like knew all the lyrics running around my neighborhood singing that song. Uh, And of course, Expressway to Your Heart, another one that uh, gets caught in your head and you just really know it and uh, sing along. So um, those are a few of my thoughts about the great Gamble and Huff. Uh, So Ashley, what are we going to be doing next? Well, uh, next we're going to do a little bit of a genre shift, and we are going to put on our finest platform shoes and head to the disco uh, and hear from Harry Casey of Casey and the Sunshine Band, uh, who I think most people probably would 
recognized for 1970s music. Uh, some of their some of his fantastic songs, including uh, "Shake Your Booty," "I'm Your Boogie Man," uh, "Boogie Shoes," anything with boogie, basically. <laughs> Um, just so many, uh, amazing hits. And, uh, he really had a, he just wanted to write dance music, which I think is such a fun and, uh, great mentality to have as a songwriter. You just, you know, you want to make this fun music for people to enjoy. And so we're going to hear a little bit about, uh, how he got into songwriting and also how the name Casey and the Sunshine Band, uh, was created. So here is Harry Casey. One of the things I was hoping to talk to you a little bit about is your songwriting. When did that begin? Um, that probably started early too. I mean, I, I, I remember writing one of my first songs kind of with my cousin at 13, but I think I might have been writing before that. Uh, writing was a way of, you know, back then you couldn't really talk to your parents that much like you can now and just be really open with them. So anytime I felt like I was upset with what was going on in the world or, you know, because all that war stuff was going on and stuff, you know, during my childhood and, um, and we just come out of war. Um, it was like, uh, or I had a problem with a relationship or a feeling that I, something I was feeling inside, I would kind of write it down in poetic words, but it always kind of had them, every time I would do it, it kind of had a melody, you know, when I would kind of be writing it. So it was, uh, it's something I started doing very, very early on. That's really cool. Yes. Yeah. So were you influenced by other songwriters? I, I don't know if I was influenced by anyone other than I, I guess I understood the forum or I knew what the forum was. Um, I ended up probably writing a lot more commercially once I started making records that I was probably writing in my youth. Um, uh, but yeah, um, uh, you know, probably some of my earlier writings were probably more stories than, than commercial, like I ended up writing. And I figured that out by listening. I, I was at the secretary that worked at TK's house one night. and. Uh, I think the Beatles had just come out with one of the albums with all the lyrics on it. I really wasn't into the Beatles that much, but I remember seeing the album and looking at the lyrics. And I thought, "Wow, these are just, you know, very simple and everything." And I and I kind of went with that kind of simplicity on top of working in a record store and um, uh, noticing when people would come in to ask for a record. Uh, sometimes they wouldn't know the title because the title would be buried in, in you know, in a, in a sentence or something and um, wouldn't, be very, wouldn't be repeated very often. So I, I knew I wanted to make sure that when I wrote that my records were a little bit more repetitive so that the, the, the title was kind of drilled into your head so when you walked in the store you knew what you wanted to buy. Very interesting. So the, what's the answer to the age-old question, what came first, Casey or Disco? KC came first. <laughs> you tried different styles of music when you were first playing professionally. Um, right? I mean, I, I've always loved all kinds of music. I, I don't know if I tried different. Uh, my main interest was always rhythm and blues music or any music that had a kind of rhythm, rhythm and blues sound or uh, had some kind of rhythm to it. So I was... Uh, I would gravitate toward those type of, of records. And that could be Led Zeppelin, that could be a anybody at the time. I mean, uh, Grand Funk Railroad was very funky and Spooky Tooth and uh, Mike Lee Michaels and that whole Joe Cocker and, and the Mad, uh, Mad Dogs and Englishmen, I think it was. 
Um, and, and, you know, even, I mean, it was just so much out there, really. I mean, I, I think all of the roots to all the music come from R&B in a way. So um, there's always some R&B in everyone's music, even country. So, yeah, um, so, so I think, you know, that I might have been influenced by that. Yeah, definitely. What's interesting to me is, is if you do take apart the disco, there is a lot of blues in there. And well, I mean, you have to understand, I mean, the music that was created for Casey and the Sunshine Man, the idea was to make a, a dance album, to make an album that when you went to a party, that from side A to side B, it was all danceable and no slow songs and nothing, you know, just all up tempo, have a good time, dance thing. So that was the whole idea behind the creation of that sound, was to make sure everything was uplifting, energetic, and danceable. Did you have a band before the Sunshine Band? Not, not really. Um, the Sunshine Band was really just the studio musicians that after the records became hits, I asked them if they would go out as Casey and the Sunshine Band. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So um, uh, the, the first album was, was just a lot of, I mean, a lot of the background vocals were done by Gwen McRae, Betty Wright, George McRae, uh, any of the artists that were hanging out at the time at TK Records. Um, different musicians played on the, the album. And I called it Casey and the Sunshine, but I'm not really sure. I didn't want to call it by my real name because I thought, what if I get popular and then I go into a store or something so I knows who it's me and they might charge me more. So I tried to come up with this other kind of configuration and called it Casey and the Sunshine Band when there really was no band. And it was just really me with studio musicians. So, um, and so things start, I mean, from the first record, it hit. So I didn't have a choice. I mean, I actually, I called it Casey and the Sunshine Junkanoo Band because the, the initial idea came from part of the Caribbean music called Junkanoo Music. And uh, so I, I kind of bailed on that after this, the first song and then on the second song. Plus, it was too long to write out on the, the, all the, the local radio stations used to make these charts. And, and put them on the rec at the record store. You could pick up, you know, the, uh, WQAM was our main station, and you could pick up WQAM and see what's on, you know, see what songs you wanted to buy or whatever. What was the top five or top ten, top twenty-five, whatever they had. And so, um, where was I going? Oh, so so it, it was too long to write the name out. So I dropped the Junkanoo part, even though it was still Casey and the Sunshine. It was still long, but it wasn't like Casey and the Sunshine Junkanoo man. <laughs> And, and, and the KC just came from my last name. It also was the prefix for Columbia Records. So when we ordered a record on Columbia Records, we would order KC100888 or whatever it was. And then Sunshine was actually from, you know, um, the state of Florida, Sunshine State. So Sunshine Band. I mean, that's really how it all came together. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, a couple of years ago, actually probably like six or seven years ago, I got to interview Mr. Stone, and oh, yeah. I'd love to talk to you a little bit about him. How did you first meet him? Um, well, I met Henry many years before I actually landed at TK because at the record store we worked at, um, we would place orders, and then we would call them in to the distributorship that Henry owned, and we would called in on Monday and Thursday and pick him up on Tuesday and Friday. So I met Henry by going there to pick up orders and, you know, uh, and eventually started hanging out there and just kind of being his side man or whatever, um, uh, doing errands for him, whatever he needed to be done. I mean, I, I just, while I was waiting to have this career or whatever, I was doing just so many different things. 
And I mean, I, and I got to know Henry, and Henry kind of took me on like a son. Yeah, he spoke very kindly about yeah. you. I remember that very well, distinctly. We had this amazing relationship. Hmm. And what a smart guy. Yeah, very smart. <laughs> and he realized my talent, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, and he was, he was interested in more than just, you know, what was going to happen next. Right. That was the thing that I sort of gleaned from him. Yeah. Very interesting guy. So, um, how do you define the, the disco movement being a, 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 a very critical part of that? How do you define that era? What do you mean define it? Um, I mean, I set out to make the world dance. <laughs> and, you know, um, I mean, it was originally R&B pop or whatever we were doing. And after the movie Saturday Night Fever, that's filmed in a discotheque, all of a sudden became disco music. And it was, you know, you know, a lot of our beat and stuff or whatever that was used to eventually, you know, become what became disco music or whatever. I never felt that I was really part of the disco thing. I was kind of ahead of it. I never felt like I was like, I didn't try to really make disco records, if you want to call them disco records. I was just making what I started out making. It was eventually, um, uh, what's the word, like, um, um, like evolution. There was an evolution of that sound and it eventually became, it was R&B, then they called it disco, and then they tried to say disco sucks, and then they named it New Wave, and then they named it something else, and it's 2017, I'm not sure what they called it. Now it's just dance music, so, <laughs> like, it was dance music to begin with. Um, after, all the, after all the labeling and all the sucking and all everything like that, it was just, was, was dance music, now it's just dance music. Well. Hello. And people are still dancing to your music. Well, they never stopped right. dancing. They never yeah. stopped dancing. I mean, clubs are bigger than ever. I mean, look at DJs now make as much as recording artists. And some DJs have become recording artists. Uh, so it's really, really taken on a different thing in the evolution of it. Uh, that, uh, you know, the DJs are, are stars now as well as the, the music that they play. So that was Harry Casey of Casey and the Sunshine Band fame, uh, just talking about his background and the formation of the band. Uh, I love all of his, mu like all of that music. It's such a great, happy uh, sound. And, and I love that he just wanted to make that music, that kind of music. And he didn't think of it as disco. He didn't think of it as a certain thing. It was just what he wanted to make, which is great. Um, Boogie Shoes, of course, Fantastic, and also I would be remiss if I did not mention that it was on the Saturday Night Fever uh, soundtrack, which I believe is the number two most sold soundtrack. So, you know, go Saturday Night Fever and John Travolta and all that good stuff. <laughs> what do we have next here, Mike? So up next, we have some more songwriting fame. Uh, Allie Willis, who we've heard multiple times on this podcast, amazing songwriter, amazing person. Um, we actually released a very special video about Allie Willis um, for NAMM's Believe in Music Week in 2021 that we just posted on the website, uh, nam.org slash library. And it's just a, a great video that has her full interview as well as some comments from Dan and Suzanne Del Fiorentino. Um, just great stuff. I highly recommend you checking it out if Allie Willis and songwriting is something that interests you. Um, so here we go. Allie Willis, her 2018 NAM Oral History interview. She's going to be talking about how she got into songwriting. A friend from Detroit 
said that his uncle worked at Columbia Records and he'd set up an interview for me there. Um, and so I met with the uncle who was really high up, just like a couple steps under Clive Davis, who was my, ended up being my very first boss. That's still the relationship I have with him. The 21-year-old Alley, president of Columbia Records, Clive. He's like a father to me. And um, uh, so this guy, Dick Asher, uh, introduced me to the head of advertising. And as luck would have it, the uh, secretary in the advertising department told the boss that day she was going to uh, Jamaica for the summer and they needed someone to fill in. So they sent me upstairs, you had to take a typing test. I was on my 11th fail when the boss of the advertising just called upstairs and said, we don't care, just send her down. So I, uh, you know, I did that, you know, <laughs> keeping up with everything. And within a month, they made me a junior copywriter, which was the most glamorous job that anyone straight out of college could have at the biggest record company there was. Mm -hmm. So I was, the accounts I was given were all the minority acts, which were all the girls and all the blacks. That was all I cared about, you know, anyway. Um, first person I met was Janis Joplin. Five days before she died, I just, you know, slid in. Eventually moved into her apartment, but that was a couple years later. And um, so, uh, Laura Nero was the first person I was given. I was a Laura Nero fanatic. Uh, her manager, it was his first client, was David Geffen. So that was my first little team, was uh, Laura Nero, David Geffen, um, and uh, the photographer who shot all her stuff, Stephen Paley, who I'm still in contact with. And, um, but, you know, Barbara Streisand, Black Axe, you know, Sly and the Family Stone. Every now and then a white one would slip in, like Simon and Garfunkel, something like that. But um, the day that I, well, I should say, um, I bought a piano. This was two and a half years after I started at the label. I bought a piano and I bought a reel to reel. See, reel, no, reel to reel. <laughs> Uh, no, actually, it's yeah. this. That, that's the kind of stuff that my brain just goes into scramble mode. Um, bought a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder, and this was 1972, and one of the biggest songs of the year was a ballad by Gilbert O'Sullivan called um, Alone Again Naturally. I just thought it was an unbelievable song. And I was on a bus coming down uh, Columbus Avenue, and I just started writing my own lyric to it. And I had a complete lyric by the time I was home. And I called up the one friend I had from college who lived in New York, played piano, and had an afro. White guy. Uh, and I said to him, you want to write a song? And he said, well, I never have. I said, you know, me neither. But, you know, I wrote this lyric and come over and let's, you know, write the music together. So he brought over the sheet music to Never Can Say Goodbye, which was out by Barry White at that time. Barry White? No, Isaac Hayes. Isaac Hayes. And uh, I should never confuse those two. <laughs> also two I idolized. And... Um, 
we took the sheet music and we started at the back, the last chord, and he just played the chords backwards. I can sing a melody to anything. If you were to clunk over now, I would write to the clunk of the body. I mean, I, anything, any sound I can write to. So, um, you know, just sang this melody, he's playing the stuff, and I had my first song. Then I wrote uh, two others alone. Again, not being able to play, but I could figure out a chord and I could just clump and then I could clump, you know. And um, so I had three songs. I took them to my boss at the record company. He loved them. He said, let's take them to Ron Alexenberg. He was president of Epic at the time. And so anything that Ron signed, he had to get okayed by Clive. And we didn't tell them who it was because it was a conflict of interest. And I needed to keep the, you know, the job. So Alexenberg loved them, sent them to Clive, loved it, got a deal. Because in those days, if you were decent and you were a singer-songwriter, you were getting a deal. Uh, and so my very first 10 songs uh, became my first and only album, Child Star. The producer was Jerry Ragavoy, incredible songwriter, Time is on My Side, uh, Peace of My Heart, I mean, really great stuff. And um, we co-wrote one song for the album, otherwise it was all my stuff. Uh, took a couple years between recording and coming out. That came out in 1974. And um, I immediately uh, went on tour, had never been on stage before. I played a tree with no lines in second grade and was a mess on stage. The teacher, my costume was like a paper bag you know, grocery bag with slits in it and then painted green so I looked like I had some leaves. And the teacher from the side of the stage kept going, Willis, you know, stop shaking. I was so nervous and so the bag was like, you know, <laughs> crinkling and making all this noise. So for my first appearance, Epic Records puts me in front of 10,000 people Opening for a folk singer, David Bromberg, who was a big folk singer at that time, and I had an all-black band dressed as sequined vegetables. And I would spend all my time on the costumes, the props. It had more props, and no one was doing that in, in, in you know these days. I'm building furniture, I'm doing all this stuff, terrified to rehearse. Um, and... Uh, you know, but it was time, so I, I went out on stage. It was horrible. So I had four fairly horrible, to me, uh, experiences on stage. And we were at Ohio State. I got booked there because my agent also had Joni Mitchell, and they said, if you want Joni Mitchell, you take Allie Willis. So I think I'm opening for Joni Mitchell. We walk in, everyone dressed as the sequined vegetables, except me, and I used to collect uh, 
tiny little miniature, like charms, basically, head to toe, covered with charms. And they walk us into a lunchroom where they have built like a little cardboard, basically, stage. There's a psychology class at the back of the um, room, and in between every song, the professor is yelling, can you keep that racket down? And there were three people eating hot dogs in front of the stage. And my, the band, all of whom went on to become someone, um, they said, no, no, you every situation, you have to be professional. You can't get mad that they booked you into a lunchroom with a class going on. And I, I was so scared to perform anyway. I was losing my voice all the time. So we were on the sixth song, and it was the instrumental. And I just turned around and I went, bye and i jumped off the stage i wish i could say i walked down the aisle and left <laughs> but i just had to squeeze in front of the hot dog eaters and split and i just thought that's it i cannot uh, do this and i'm i'm not going to perform anymore and i knew that was going to be death because you know my album came out on two other albums i had to help promote on the same uh, in the same week as bruce springsteen and billy joel's first album so it's like i'm attending these meetings as a copywriter i know i'm dead no one's going to promote me but I just thought, I can't like live with this trauma. But I thought, I'll take a year, I'll like go to small venues, I'll learn how to perform. Um, that took 37 years to do that. Uh, now it's my favorite thing to do, but I, I was terrified for decades. Um, but one incredibly significant thing happened from that album. Um, my best friend, who was one of the Harlettes, which was Bette Midler's group, that's how I ate. We would go backstage every night when she was on Broadway and eat all the, <laughs> the food in her green room. Um, uh, she, uh, so I was dropped. I was dropped about three months after that. And so my best friend, she calls me up and she says, you shouldn't be alone today even though I knew it was a blessing in disguise. I mean, it felt hideous, but I knew it was best. I couldn't go on doing this. And um, uh, she said, I'm, you know, I've got a background session tonight, come to the session. And I kept saying no, because the last place you wanna be when you are dropped is at someone else's recording session. But she was adamant. Um, and she told me the name of the singer. I'd kind of heard of her, but didn't like really know who she was. And uh, this was another one of those fate things where we open the door to the studio. The singer is maybe as far away from me as you are, takes one look at me, turns around, bows at my feet, literally is going like this, and says, what are you doing here? Go home and write me a song. And it was Bonnie Raitt. So I called my friend who had been yapping about Bonnie Raitt and uh, David Lasley, also an incredible songwriter, but at that time, everyone's you know starving to death. And uh, he came over at midnight. We wrote three songs. And we're at the studio by noon the next day. Uh, she chose one of them. She did it. We went on the road as the background singers. And that's when I went, 
being in the back is fine. <laughs> uh, you know, all the pressure is off. You have all the good time, but you don't, the responsibility is not on you. Now, I feel completely different now, but that's after like four or five decades, you know. So uh, that's how I got my first cut. Because my friend said to me, what uh, about this whole process? What's the part of it you enjoy? And I said, the songwriting. Because it was really interesting. I loved uh, collaborations, even though I was mostly writing by myself at the time. I loved the friends, you know, that I was meeting through it. So that's why she took me to the session. I mean, she literally said, Maybe, well, I didn't even pay attention to the name, you know. Uh, you know, maybe she'll want to do one of your songs. I mean, it was so naive to think that way, but it worked. So then I thought they would roll in, you know, it's just, it's going to keep coming. And, you know, one or two a year, sometimes significant artists, but never the single. And then um, 1977... That whole year, I moved to L.A. in 76. 76 and 77, I was just going around to every publisher there was, getting turned down by everyone. All said the same thing. Well, your style's really unique, and these songs are really good, but it's not what we're looking for. So where I really wanted to be was at A&M, Irving Elmo, because everyone said that's the hottest place now. So, of course, I didn't go there. I mean, I'm being turned down by all these little publishers. Why would I humiliate myself uh, by going to the biggest? And then um, everyone else was eliminated. So I thought, I'm not going to stop being a songwriter, but I'm not going to get any covers unless I have a publisher because that's I'm not good at that. I've never to this day ever given anyone a song and said, this would be great for you to sing. I'm way more interested in, I don't want any pressure on the relationship. Will you make a good party guest or not? So, um, but I, I, find I had no alternative at this point. So I just thought, final humiliation, let's just go in and get this done. So I meet with the president, who was Chuck Kay at the time, and all I had was a reel-to-reel. -reel. I couldn't afford to make any kind of smaller format. And took the reel-to-reel -reel in in this battered box that, you know, should have had a hundred no's, you know, written on it. So he puts on the first song, Child Star, which was the title song of the album. And in the middle of the song, he turns around and he goes, click, and he shuts it off. So I'm already up. I have been through this now a hundred times and I'm literally like putting my stuff in my little bag and I'm standing up and he literally reaches across the table with his hand out and said, congratulations, you have a deal. And that was after hearing a half a song. So that was mind blowing to me. And within the first eight weeks, I got 11 covers and um, signed on my birthday, in 19, on my uh, 30th birthday, and uh, then started getting all these other, other covers. Then the same friend who took me to Bonnie Raitt, her name was Sharon Red. she actually became a big disco singer. Um, she, the Harlots got a deal 
for their own record, this was in 1970, well, they got it in 76, but this would have been 78. And um, they took a few of my songs to their producer who was in San Francisco because they wanted to do it on their album. And he, at the same time, was producing Patti LaBelle. She heard the songs. She paid for me to come up to San Francisco and put them down on, uh, make demos, because they didn't have enough money for demos. So they're, you know, bringing songs with me, like, you know, plunking out notes and stuff. Yeah. So that was my first kind of legitimate uh, break. Uh, and she started, from then on, she would regularly do at least two songs of mine on every album. But she said to me while we were up there, I was only up for a few days, um, my friend is recording in Studio B. He needs lyrics. Go in and see him. And I didn't do it because it's like, I have finally hit the big kahuna. I'm not going off with the friend, you know. And also, I didn't like just writing lyrics. Um, I felt very distant from the song when I did it. Um, so I avoided Studio B for the first two days. The third day, I'm walking down the hall, and the door to Studio B opens, and this guy comes out. And I go, oh, God, this is like the guy. So I duck into the bathroom. I am on the toilet. The bathroom door opens and I hear clump, 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 and then I see these two male feet slide under the door. So this person is this far away from me on the toilet. And I just hear this, you know, kind of deep voice and he says, you know, Patty says you're a great writer. Come into Studio B. So it's like, I gotta go. <laughs> I walk in, I've never seen that many keyboards in my life. Um, but I still, I didn't know who it was. It's just like my attitude is, let me get this over as fast as I can get it over. So we immediately, we sit down across from each other and we had written, we were on the middle of the second song, putting lyrics to it. And he got a phone call. And it was the first time I had a chance to just look at him. And I look at him and I look at the keyboards and I go, holy shit, it's Herbie Hancock. And so I ended up writing like three or four songs on that album. Patty then did a bunch of stuff. So that was the beginning of 1978. Um, and those two credits, along with a friend of mine starting to date someone in Earth, Wind and Fire, that led to uh, Verdine White hearing about me. Um, uh, she told Verdine, you should really like write with her. She's really good. Um, and so I started with him. Earth, Wind and Fire was by far my favorite group at the time. Maurice White, to me, the most underrated great singer in the, in the world. Uh, but I, I didn't even think about that. It was just like, okay, this is one more, you know, person. He's re he had two groups that he was uh, recording. We wrote for them. He said to me a couple times, I'm going to tell my brother Maurice about you. I thought that will never happen. It's too big, to, you know, to, I mean, Patty and Herbie, great. But Earth, Wind and Fire was like at the top of the charts then. Uh, and then out of the blue, I get a phone call. Only conversation was, is this Allie Willis? Yes, this is Maurice White. Did not ask me if I wanted to write a song. 
His next line was, do you want to write the whole next Earth, Wind & Fire album with me? And I just, I thought either someone's playing a joke or, I mean, I knew Verdeen, he was a man of his word, but it was just, it was too big. Uh, so I went to the studio the next day, which was right around the block from where, you know, my apartment was. And uh, as I walked in, they were working on the intro to September. And I just thought, this is the happiest thing I have ever heard. Please let this be what he wants me to work on. And within five minutes, we had started. So we wrote September to be the first, uh, the only new single on uh, Earth, Wind & Fire's Greatest Hits, number one. Um, volume one, which that was mind blowing. Here I am with all these like incredible songs. Uh, and at the same time we were writing the I Am album. So, uh, and then from that moment on, I had already gotten the 11 covers in the eight weeks. And then you throw Earth, Wind and Fire into the mix and then it just exploded. And almost immediately I knew this is not for me. It was, Everyone, first of all, a lot of them only wanted lyrics. That, I knew I had to do it because it would mean I would get incredible credits. I would have done, I would have washed floors to be with Earth, Wind & Fire. Um, but the amount of people that started asking me, and it was in very early days of just sending people tracks, and because I also wrote music in Nine-tenths of the cases, I thought, had I been involved on the music, this would have changed at bar five. So I ended up getting over a hundred songs cut a year for the next few years, but all the while knowing I, I can't do this. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I can't uh, do it. And because I went from thinking I wrote very special songs to thinking I was just turning them out like hamburgers. But after being ignored for so long, it's very hard when the biggest singers in the world want to, you know, and producers in the world want to work with you. So um, it went on at that pace uh, until 1981. And then a group I had written for uh, before, Manhattan Transfer, and I also, uh, when I had to quit my job finally at the record company, I became a hat check girl at, uh, at a uh, the, one of the biggest comedy clubs in New York, Catch a Rising Star. And during the day, I was hanging posters for the biggest cabaret, which was called Reno Sweeney's. All the rules that you think are so stupid, like why do there have to be exact rhymes? I mean, exact. Pop songwriting, as long as it's got kind of the same vowel in it, you can go there. <laughs> so there were so many times we would be stuck for days. Like we had to rhyme the word thimble. <laughs> and, okay, there are certain words that match nimble, but really, do you speak that way? Do you use I'm so nimble, you know? <laughs> and that took us three days and we are bitching all the way through. But we finally got it to go with uh, Resemble. And it, we just couldn't believe it. And I will never again do a song that just has a close rhyme. Mm -hmm. To me now, it seems like lazy, sloppy songwriting. Um, and I learned how to be a way better collaborator. I, I was always someone who thought 
collaboration is as much of a skill as writing music or writing lyrics and so many people don't understand that it becomes it's got to be my line in there or you know when in fact you look for what you don't have that the other person have has and it became a relief that um, you would spot everyone's strength and if you didn't know what to do at that time but the the thing that needed to be solved was something that you were confident they knew it was a pleasure just to sit back and say you know give it to me so uh, you know Brenda's strength was um, she voices chords unlike anyone I have ever heard she writes the most gorgeous uh, chords mm. my we were all good lyricists so that was great because that doesn't usually happen my strength melodies and she puts her hands down it's like Lamont well with him I scream Lamont Dozier <laughs> Brenda it's like by the time she's at the second chord I've already got the melody and Stevens uh, strength was uh, rhythmically and it drove me crazy at first because he was like on the grid and I am like I like to be behind the beat I like to just kind of flow so we would have a lot of arguments about that but ultimately when I gave into it I thought oh my god I've really learned to write like rhythmically a whole different way so I thought he was so good it changed me and I would all three of us feel that we have influenced each other you know a lot so that that was you know in the end a great story but five years of trauma creating it as we continue with our podcast dedicated to the songwriters of the 1970s that was Allie Willis who boy oh boy what a career she had I just absolutely love listening to her she was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2018. Uh, she won a couple of Grammys, uh, one for the Beverly Hills Cop soundtrack. Uh, the Neutron Dance of hers was on that. Fantastic. Uh, the Color Purple, uh, which she co-wrote with Brenda Russell, uh, who we also recently were able to interview for the NAM Oral History Program. And she and uh, Brenda were nominated for a Tony for The Color Purple, the musical. And, of course, uh, she also got a nomination but did not win for I'll Be There For You, the um, theme song for the TV show Friends. Do you guys remember what actually won? I think it was like Deep Space Nine or some really like ridiculous soundtrack that nobody knows now. Everybody knows Friends. It's kind of a drag. Anyway, um, as we continue, um, boy, this is just such a lot of fun. I hope you guys are enjoying this podcast as much as we are. Uh, Mike, what's up next? Next up, we are going to be hearing from two very prominent songwriters. First, Andy Frazier, uh, bassist in the band Free that formed in 1968. He is going to be talking about one of his biggest hits that he actually wrote when he was 15 years old. Kind of crazy. And after him, we're going to be hearing from Charles Wright, who wrote this pretty big song you may have heard, Express Yourself. It's kind of been played all over the world and sampled by many groups. <laughs> so he's going to be telling the story of writing that. Um, yeah, so we hope you enjoy these next two segments on the Music History Project. You know, people say, how does you do that when you're 15? You don't have the worries of the world on your shoulder. 
you know, you don't have to deal with insurance and all the other crap, you know, you're free. Why are Olympic champions 15 years old? You know, same reason. So, yeah, yeah, we were doing things our way. The only argument he ever won with us, Chris Blakewell, was all right now. We'd written it as a throwaway. In fact, it, it, we went to like, I think it was Leeds College, and it was raining, we got lost, we got pierced, we arrived at the gig in a foul mood, could have held 3,000 people and there was 33 people there, all out their heads on mandracks, bumping into each other like rubber people, um, like a 1970s mosh pit. They didn't even know when we came on stage or not, they totally ignored us. And usually in those situations, we could play for ourselves and be really good, but we sucked. So when we came off stage, there was that, that horrible silence in the dressing room. And to break the silence, I start singing, All right now, baby, come on, it's another day tomorrow. And they start tapping along and harmonizing. And that was the start of the song. And the chords were like me trying to be Pete Townsend, who I thought was king of the chords, you know. <laughs> and and we, it was a throwaway for us. It was like a three-chord trick. When Blackwell said, that's a single, we said, you can't be serious. And that's embarrassing. But he argued for it, and he turned out to be right. Yeah. That's incredible. Isn't it? Wow. Yeah. Well, there was such a magic amongst the musicians on that song. Was it because it was created together, you think? I think so. I think that's what the magic was. I mean, it was a great band. And I think whatever we played was pretty good. E even like a, a two-chord trick, yeah. you know. Yeah. We had a sense of knowing each other's weaknesses and where to compensate. And that's sort of what I hate about Beatles remixes, because they knew each other's weaknesses, and you don't hear them on their mixes. But when they're remixed, they've got like somebody gloriously stereo digital out of tune, um, and, and it doesn't work. Can we talk a little bit about Express Yourself? How did that come about? Yeah. Uh, we were performing one night at Texas A&M, and uh, we were closing the show uh, with Do Your Thing, which was one of our major hits. And when it ended, it ends abruptly. When it ended, the kids kept clapping and stumping. Man, only God made me say it. I don't know why I said it. I said, express yourself. And they went crazy. So I said it a couple other times, they reacted in the same manner. So I went to the hotel that night, I sat down with a pencil and paper, and I wrote the lyrics out between that and when I got on the plane on the way home the next day, and I uh, got off the plane, I had finished the lyrics, and then uh, I, decided, I, I was working on the musical part, the, 
the bass line, the drum, play it, the lump drum part, and uh, my guitar part, and Al McKay's guitar part. But Al McKay would not play the part properly. When we get down in the song, he just get carried away. So one Sunday afternoon, I said, I called the engineer, and. Uh, uh, the drummer and the bass player and one in the studio, just three of us, and we played Express Yourself to our heart's content. When I felt like I had it, I took that one, take, took it home. Then Monday, that was on Sunday, called the horn players. They came in, they sat down, and they heard it, and they didn't want to play on it. Say it was junk. So I threatened them. I said, you guys, I'll go get some old studio buddies. They'll be glad to play it. They grumbled, but they played it. They went in the studio and recorded it. And uh, kind of got them dark glasses so they wouldn't have to look me in the eye anymore. <laughs> anyway. So uh, I took it to the president of Warren Brothers. He thought it was a piece of junk. I told him, man, just put it out. It's a hit. Uh, the, we were working in Detroit for a disc jockey. When the record came out, they sent me the first two copies. I gave the disc jockey one. He went in his office and he played. He came out and said, I think you made a mistake this time, Charles. He said, well, you guys are doing a good job for me. Here's, I'm going to play it for you, but I think it's a bum. I knew what it was. And it just took off like that. Fantastic. Yeah. I asked Melvin, I'm going to ask you, who came up with the bass lick? I write all of my bass parts. Melvin played the hell out of it and added a little stuff to it. But it don't work if it don't. I have all of my music is a pattern. Hmm. He tell you he did it. No, he told me you did it. Yeah, all right, don't don't start no stuff off up in here. <laughs> By the way, he's left-handed. I'm left-handed. Al McKay's left-handed. James got in the whole rhythm section, left-handed. No and you're left-handed. Yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> That's a yeah. great bass line. Uh, thank you. Any ideas where it came from or just sort of developed? No. Uh, once I did the guitar part, I, I put it on tape, and then I started working on the bass part, and I go with the guitar part from... Whatever the guitar is doing, I make sure that I fit it with everything else. Mm. Yeah. You sure Melvin didn't tell you he come <laughs> up with that part? Because I know damn well he didn't. No, he, yeah, he gave you all the credit. All right. Yes, he did. Continuing with the songwriters of the 1970s, that was Charles Wright of the very famous Express Yourself tune that played throughout the 70s, uh, and even to today, as Mike mentioned. Uh, you know, the name of his band in Los Angeles was the Watts 103rd Street Rhythm Band that also included two other guys that we were so lucky to interview, uh, James Gatson on drums, who has been a major, major studio musician for many, many years.
years. Check out any of the Bill Withers recordings and you will hear him playing drums. And Melvin Dunlap on drum, on bass rather. Um, and it's a funny story because I got to interview Melvin um, before Charles Wright. And I asked Melvin specifically about that bass line. Did you, you know, how did you come up with that bass line? He says, oh, no, Charles, Charles came up with that. And as you just heard, when I brought up the Charles, he was like, wait, did he say he did it? No, 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 I did it. I said, no, 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 he said you did it. <laughs> I love it. What great guys, what great characters. Um, and uh, just to uh, give you some homework, if you're interested in learning a little bit more about that band, uh, the Watts 103rd Street Rhythm Band, there's another tune that Charles Wright wrote that I absolutely love, um, and you may too. It's called Your Love Means Everything to Me. Great tune. Uh, so check it out if you can. And uh, up next, we are going to uh, be hearing from Jose Feliciano, who has quite an amazing career uh and if you might not recognize his name you definitely know his music uh he was the uh, songwriter for Feliz Navidad which I'm pretty sure we all know at this point (laughs) among many other hits um and he has also uh gotten a Latin Grammy Lifetime Achievement in 2011 and was also inducted into the Latin Songwriting Hall of Fame in 2013 so uh definitely a big uh big star there in the songwriting and latin music uh realm so we're going to hear a little bit from him about just growing up and where his passion for music came and then into some of the great songs that he has written over the years so here is jose feliciano my passion for music developed as a child when i was three years old and uh, i had an uncle who was uh, a non-professional musician but He was a musician for his own pleasure, and he played a Puerto Rican instrument called the cuatro, and I would accompany him on a tin cracker can. I started out playing percussion as a little boy. That's fantastic. Yeah. What do you remember about that? Well, I remember how much I loved music, how it seemed to me that from that age on there was a force pushing me towards it because anything I got a hold of, I made music with. And that is why I say that parents have to watch out for kids' knacks. Because a lot of times, kids get confused by too many things in front of them and they don't concentrate on one thing. With me, I concentrated on music. I knew that was my knack. I didn't know about fame or fortune, but I knew that I loved music and that was my knack. Well said, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Mm -hmm. One of the things I'm sort of curious about is um, your experiences with musical instruments. What was the first one that you played? Well, the first instrument that I played was uh, at the age of four, the harmonica. Um, My father, who was in New York at the time, sent me uh, and my brothers uh, some Christmas presents and he sent uh, sent me a harmonica and I immediately took to it, I understood it, I played it I played it for quite a while till I left uh, Puerto, uh, Puerto Rico the year after and wound up in New York City 
in Spanish Harlem. I continued the harmonica, but then I became interested in the concertina and, uh, and stuff like that, and that's how music started for me. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. I'm sort of curious, what was the uh, introduction of the concertino? Did you hear uh, somebody else play it? I did. I heard it on the radio. Uh, and I liked it. I liked the sound of it. And one day, my father um, met, met me coming home from school off the uh, bus. And he said, I have something for you. And he had a paper bag in his hand with a small concertina that he had found. And as soon as he gave it to me, I began to practice on it. That's fantastic. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, what did your father do for a living? Well, my dad uh, had menial jobs. Um, my father was a shipping clerk in New York, worked with a factory that made lamps, and he worked for them for a while. And dad, on the weekends, would work as a porter, in, uh, as a, a busboy, actually, in restaurants. And one of the restaurants he worked in was in Guy Lombardo's restaurant in Freeport, Long Island. So he had some exposure to some nice music. Well, he did. Uh, he heard Latin, well, Latin music, American music. Uh, I listened to a lot of Latin music for the first <clears throat> few years of my life in New York. I came in really at the richest time of music, American music, during the rock and roll era. And um, at eight years old, I learned to play the ukulele. And at nine years old, I heard the guitar. And just like the concertina, I fell in love with it, except that I really fell in love with the guitar. And I started abandoning the concertina for the guitar. <laughs> That's great. What was the first guitar, do you recall? My first guitar was uh, given to me by a friend of my father's. He went to, um, well, this is after I moved out of Spanish Harlem in 1955. He um, went to a Jewish pawn shop and, and he bargained with the guy and he bought me a $10 Stella. And that's where I learned to play the guitar. And at nine years old, I wasn't very good because I was learning. But I would say when I reached the age of 12 or so, I really got good at it. And I started playing uh, the music I heard, the rock and roll, like Chuck Berry, uh, Fats Domino, Rick Nelson. Uh, I started playing what I heard. And that's how it began. I'd love to have you, maybe we can pick one or two songs and you can tell us a little bit about the story behind it and how okay. it became a song. Okay, well, comes uh, to mind? one of the songs that I wrote that is very popular is a song called Rain. And uh, Rain was written in Hawaii at Hana Ranch one day, uh, like it does in Hawaii. I was in Hawaii in January, which is my favorite time to go to Hawaii because it's not blazing hot. And so uh, I was sitting around at the time and this song came to my mind and I wrote it, it was raining.
and um, I had taken a little part from a Peter, Paul and Mary song, which was the, the bridge of the song, it's raining, it's pouring. And so that's how that song came to mind. Um, and uh, it, it, uh, it's become a really big song. Um, if you want to know like about Feliz Navidad, which everybody always asks me, yeah. I wrote that in 1970 and I wrote it as part of a Christmas album. It was at the suggestion of my producer, Rick Gerard, who asked me to write a Christmas song for the album. Were you surprised at how that song has become sort of a part of, of the tradition of Christmas? Most, most definitely. I didn't expect what has happened with that song to happen. So I'm thrilled about it. And I'm happy because uh, when I'm not here on this earth, there'll still be a part of me left behind for my fans and my friends. So I'm thrilled. That's really well said. That's uh -huh. beautiful. Mm -hmm. So the next step of after having this idea of these songs, writing them down and making something that you're proud of, what then do you do with it? Well, at the time, with Feliz Navidad, it was easy. I was recording for RCA, so um, uh, I had established a little publishing company at the time, and so I put it through that, and uh, since it was on a record, the rest was easy. Yeah, it sold itself. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. Now, did you ever have your own publishing company? I did. Uh, a record company will record your song, and you never see any royalties from the publishing because they own it. And we didn't. I didn't want um, the record company to own my music. It's my music, uh, and so that's why I started. Uh, two publishing companies at the time. One was called Joe High and the other was um, J&H because at the time my wife's name was Hilda and so it was J&H, Jose and Hilda. Uh, of course those companies are non-existent now and I have started my own publishing company which is called Deedle Deedle and I publish all my new material that I've written in that company. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Well, I know Eric and Seth have a couple of questions. Eric, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, <clears throat> I know you're a really strong advocate for animals, and one of my favorite songs of yours is... I used to live with one. Yeah. No, um... <laughs> I love your song, No Dogs Allowed. Can you tell a little story about how that came about? Well, sure. That, um, I, was, uh, I went to England in 1967 and England at the time did not allow guide dogs in their country which was stupid because they allowed monkeys and other animals and a guide dog is the safest type of dog to allow I mean they have their rabies shots so when I landed in England they wouldn't allow my dog with me and they took my dog and quarantined it so I wrote about it that's great. Have you seen a, uh, a change in the availability of dogs? I have. Oh, sure. Actually, now England has guide dog school. People ask me to sing it uh, sometimes, but I, I try not to. Uh, the memories are not good. 
So Seth is um, really likes Chico and the Man. Well, Chico and the Man I wrote for the show. Uh, I was in Brazil at the time on vacation, and I got a call, and I was asked to come back to California, and there uh, I was told about the show, I was told about uh, Jack Albertson's character and Freddie Prince's character, and the song came from that. I tried to put a positive spin on the relationship between Chico and the man, Jack Albertson. And it worked out really well. I'm very proud of that theme. Yeah, we absolutely love it in our house, huh, Seth? Well, thank yeah. you, thank you. <laughs> There's something about the percussion in the beginning that really makes it relatable, I think, to that whole uh, storyline. Well, you know, I did that percussion sound with the guitar, you know? Uh, and uh, I, I w I'm very proud of it because... At the time, I didn't know it when I wrote the lyrics, but the message is so profound and so positive. And I think it stems from the fact that I always try to see the good in people as opposed to seeing the bad. And there is good in everyone, isn't there? There is good in everyone, you know, and, and uh, you can always uh, see the morning sun and things will get better, even if they look dreary and bad, you know. It's like... Uh, Seth, you know, if you don't pass your exams in school, uh, don't get down on yourself. Just say, I'm going to do better. And if you use that philosophy, you won't fail. Well said. Do you have a favorite line from that song? Um, well, as you said, because there's good in everyone mm. and a new day has begun, you can see that morning sun if you try. So once again, that was Jose Feliciano on the Music History Project, and he was telling a little story there at the end about Chico and the Man and giving some words of advice to Seth Del Fiorentino, Dan's son, and we actually have a podcast with Seth called Seth's Picks, where he goes through his favorite interviews in the collection, and it's just a really fun episode, so I highly recommend checking that out if you get a chance. And we are going to listen to our last songwriter now uh, for this uh, episode, the late and great Charlie Daniels. Uh, pretty sure also you know who he is. <laughs> if not, you definitely know the devil went down to Georgia and you know what happened after that. Um, and so we're going to hear a little bit from him of just talking about songwriting and also where that song came from and how it all, just the legs that it kind of created and kept going on and on and on. And still to this day, we, you know, People cover it and people experience it for the first time and they're never quite the same after that, I don't think. Uh, so here is Charlie Daniels. Where did the writing come from? When did you start doing that? Writing is a God-given talent, uh, but so are muscles. Uh, they're God-given organs or whatever they are. I don't guess they're organs, but they're a God-given part of the country, of your body, but you have to, if you want the muscle to be healthy and grow, you have to exercise it. It's the same way with writing. Uh, you you can write if you, you have a certain talent for for writing, but you it's work. I mean, it's not. You know, I I'm a firm believer that you can rhyme and meter any line with any word if you're willing to put the time into it. And you you may have to change the word you're trying to rhyme with rather than the one in the next. I'm getting pretty 
technical here, but you know, if you got a if you got a line, what I should say is you can rhyme any thought. Because you may have to change something you really like because you can't find nothing to work with it. So you move this or change this word and make something that will go with it above it or below it. Or maybe you take this line out completely and move it somewhere else down in the song. That's all part of the hard work of songwriting. It's all part of spending hours coming up with something, saying something like you want it to be. To make it say what you want it to say, but it realizing at the same time that you have to communicate this idea to somebody else. They have to understand what it is and what it's supposed to say. So sometimes that's the hard part, is trying to say something cleverly, but also succinctly and clearly where people can understand, you know, what you're writing, unless you're writing something that's completely off the wall, and I've done that too. You know, it's like Bob Dylan write, wrote stuff, just he had the greatest way. I've often compared him with William Shakespeare, not that he did the flowery type things that Shakespeare did, but that I think that his use of the English language was just as unique as Shakespeare's was. But, you know, really getting down to it, I don't know if he knew what all those words meant or not. I really don't know, but it fit together so great. And he kind of left it up to all of us to, you know, to figure out, well, what's he talking about? You know, what's he, what's he saying? But that was beauty of Bob Dylan, you know. Um, and he wasn't saying, you know, he didn't say, well, I wrote this about this or that. I mean, not very often did he. I did have him one time. We were doing a, I did three albums with Bob, uh, a studio musician. And we were in the studio and listening to a playback. And it was a song called Three Angels. And he said, I wrote that a church across from my house. I don't know if it, where the house was. I don't know if it was in Greenwich Village or in upstate New York or wherever. He said they, they, they put three angels on the church for Christmas decoration. And after Christmas, they didn't take them down. They left them up there. And he got, he got thinking about these three angels up there. Well, when their album come out, somebody, as they always did, some Rolling Stone guy or somebody that thought he was smarter than everybody else in the world, that he could figure out Dylan's lyrics and what he meant, sat down and took the album and song by song, and he wrote this thing about these three angels, about Dylan's insight into this and these three angels looking down on this concrete world of this and that. And I thought, yeah, he wrote about Christmas decorations. <laughs> You know, so what do you know? You know, what 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 do we know? What does it mean? You know, how do you how do you figure it out? But yet it was so great, it was so beautiful the way he did it. Writers like myself, I'm more or less a communicative sort of writer that I want to communicate what I say and make it pretty plain and simple, actually. Could you tell us about how you uh, the process of getting to your first published song and, and I mean did you go to a publisher for that? No, I didn't. I took a trip, the first time I ever went to the West Coast, it was just a bunch of kids, and we went out to the West Coast, we had some bookings out here in 1959, we drove all the way across the country from Washington, D.C. I had met a guy in Jacksonville, North Carolina at the, that was in the Marine Corps, and he we had played there a lot, that's where I first started playing full time. And uh, he was from Fort Worth, Texas. He got out of the Marine Corps. He was a drummer, in fact. He moved back to Fort Worth, Texas. We stopped in Fort Worth to see him. He introduced us to a guy by the name of Bob Johnston, who was working at the Bell Helicopter Factory at the time and was writing songs and doing demos and trying to cut records and do anything in the world he could to get ahead. We put out an instrumental thing called Jaguar, but I, the, the point I'm making, I started writing with this guy. I started writing with him, and, and he taught me, Bob Johnston taught me more about songwriting and had more to do with the caliber of songs that I wrote because he was very much a perfectionist. And he was with the publisher, and I never, you know, 
to be honest with you about my first record deal, my first songs I wrote to be published were just happened. You know, they didn't. Uh, I didn't have to go you know, Tin Pan Alley and knock down doors or anything like that. It just kind of happened. And what was it like um, when Elvis recorded one of your tunes? It was absolutely wonderful. It was. It was. Uh, in fact, I wrote that song with Bob Johnston. I was in town when he recorded it, but I didn't know where he was recording it. It was incredible. I mean, it was about all the good adjectives you can think of to put to a situation because that was just the biggest thing on, on planet Earth at the time. And though it was a B-side or supposedly a B-side, Elvis really didn't have B-sides. He had a song that played one side for a while and he'd flip it over and play the other side because it was not this big flood of product like there is nowadays. I mean, you know, they can't play them fast enough to keep up with it now. But Elvis, everything he got, they were very picky about how long it was between singles and albums and stuff. And I mean, they'd get, you know, he'd have, this is a single, so we wore this side out, so flip it over and play the other side. Or maybe it played both of them simultaneously, the same thing, but it was great, it was wonderful. How did that song come about? It was an idea that I had. I was coming back from El Paso, Texas, coming back, moving from there. In fact, I spent uh, some months out there, and I was, I was coming back home, coming back to the East Coast, and I was riding with a guy who was in the Army out there. He was driving up to Washington, D.C., Virginia area, and he was going to drop me off in North Carolina at my parents' house. And when I got there, I called Bob, and he was living in Nashville, and he said, why don't you come out and write with me a couple of days? And I did, and I had I had this idea on the way in. Just it hurts me to see him treat you the way that he does. And I had a, two or three lines, and I went and we sat down and labored over it and got it going and put it uh, in a publishing company, which was Hill and Range was a publishing company he was right in Port time, and they handled Elvis's two publishing companies. He had Gladys Music and Elvis Presley Music. One was a BMI company, one was an ASCAP company, and they. Um, he heard the song and held on to it for like a year, put it in a single portfolio for a year, and then he finally recorded it. And it was, it was wonderful. <laughs> Never hurts, huh? Never hurts. <laughs> uh, um, were there other songs that you were particularly proud of that you wrote? There's a lot of songs that I'm proud of that I wrote. I mean, that, that, that I, I take pride in the craftsmanship and the songs that, that uh, some are fairly obscure, but they, they mean something to me, or I like the way that the, the words are put together, you know. Uh, I like, I like the, the mental image that I, can, that I can see that I've painted in, as far as my mind is concerned. I don't know if everybody sees that way or not, but, you know, I, I, got a, a, I came up in days of radio. I never saw a picture on TV until I was 15 years old. So a lot of my th things were imagining, you know, you'd hear the Lone Ranger riding along, and he's out in Tomontano, and they're, you know, and you got to imagine all that stuff. You didn't see it like you did with TV. Mm. So I had a pretty vivid imagination. I still do, and when I write lyrics, a lot of times I have an idea. I said I read a book, I draw a mental image of, you know, the characters in it a lot of times, and the locale that they're in, and what the situations, how they come down, and all. I have a pretty good recall of, well I say recall, I, I should say vivid imagination about, you know, picturing things in my mind. And I do that a lot of times when I write a song, I'll, I'll think about, you know, what what this means, you know, what kind of character this is, what it, that sort of thing. So there's certain things I write, I'm very, uh, you know, I'll write about places and I imagine a place and, you know, um, I, I write stories. I got a book of short stories that, uh, 
was public. Well, you got it, right? You just I just signed it for it. But I imagine these things. I imagine these places. You know, I imagine these these uh, situations when I sit down and write things. I've got a mental picture of it. Same way with a song. A lot of times, sometimes not. Some depends on what you're writing about. But you know, if it's special story song, which I write a lot of, I've kind of got a, an idea of what uh, of what's going on. Hmm. One of the things that uh, is uh, rather impressive of your career is how you put some of your bands together that really put all these styles together and created sort of, I think, the perfect pop platform for some of the music that you were writing. Um, the Devil Came Down to Georgia, I think, is probably a good example of, you know, when, when that band was created and that sound, it was a great influence. Can you tell us a little bit about how, did you vision that ahead of time? Is that something you were hoping to get to or did it just happen? Uh, no. Uh, we were in a studio recording an album called Me and My Reflections, and we came. We had written and and rehearsed the material, and we came to the glaring realization we didn't have a fiddle tune. We knew it before we went in. Why? Oh, we didn't feel like we needed one before we went in. I don't know, but we thought we got to have a fiddle song. So we literally moved out of a recording studio after we started the recording process, moved into a rehearsal studio, and spent either two or three days there and I just had this I had this thing in my mind devil went down to Georgia I don't know where it came from I mean I got some ideas but I'm not sure it came from anywhere other than just one of these things that gets in your mind and I started uh, let's let's try this guys and we just started doing this and Taz came in with da 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 and everybody started playing and the drummer started playing and uh, you know and, and first thing you know we headed in a certain direction, and uh, I just sat down and wrote the lyrics to it, and arranged it, and we went and cut it. <laughs> did you did you think that you did anything different as far as your fiddle playing on that tune? I know I did. Every time I pick up a fiddle, I do something different. I usually do something nobody else wants to do, basically. But uh, my fiddle, like I, I was saying a while ago, earlier in the interview, my fiddle playing is I don't, you know, I, I, my style is what it is forced to be because I don't do certain things I'm supposed to do. You know, I'm, but the fiddle sounds the way it sounds because I don't do it like it's supposed to be done. It has a harsh sound to it, a very harsh sort of a driving sound to it, you know, that uh, most people would not want. But, you know, I, I don't... Uh, I just throw the rules out the window, you know, and like if you listen to Devil's Part, we didn't do that electronically. We, I did that with, I think, seven fiddles or something like that on the Devil's Part of the original record. I did, uh, I just kept putting Fiddle's part on, Parts on it. It sounded like I wanted it to sound, you know, and, and you just throw the rule book out the window. Now, it's what it is. It's just a big mess. There's no musical value to it. It's just a bunch of noise. It's just a, you know, like, just a, 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 a impending doom. It sounds like it's building to a crescendo, and all of a sudden, you know, it's like you can just almost imagine like a, like a flame or something, and then you get back down to the reality of Johnny and his fiddle, and he plays good, pretty good, you know. Uh, he plays, he plays something. What he plays means something. What devil plays don't mean anything at all. But to make that happen, I used like seven fiddles on it to make it, you know, to make it work, make it come out like I want it to. But I, like, I don't know if anybody else would have thought of that. I don't. Please believe me. I'm not saying I'm unique. I don't know if anybody else would have thought of that because it just it goes so against everything musical. Everything musical that you hear or do or whatever is that part. That devil's part is totally, completely against it. It don't make any sense. None of the parts that I put on there make any sense at all. Uh, 
but works for me, my style. <laughs> it was an okay hit too, I guess. Yeah, it was. It it, it did well. <laughs> How did you first hear that it was uh, get, becoming popular? How did that come about? It was a different day in radio. It was before all the radio stations were bought up by large corporations and programmed by one person sitting there for the most part. There were a few programmers that programmed quite a few stations, but most of the stations at the time were able to pick their own music. It was a network. Uh, we, we knew the stations. We knew uh, breakout stations. We knew stations, small stations that had a more liberal playlist that would add something. And if it started going and everybody started paying attention and this one just exploded. It just literally exploded. It started small and just went, instead of just doing this, which it takes, it went poof, like that. And it, the charts, it just started up the charts. And, you know, our first platinum album, actually. And went on to be, I don't know what it is now, it's probably, I know it's quadruple platinum and maybe five times platinum now, I really don't know. But the, the song, the song has had legs, it still has legs. It's still, you know, it's amazing where I find it and what's been done with it. And it's, it's like, I was, it was truly a worldwide hit. It was a hit in places that don't even speak English. I get, I get requests from autographs from places you wouldn't believe, you know. And basically because of that song, that's the one. I went to, I had my, my birth, I celebrated my birthday in Hong Kong. And uh, some friends of mine set it up for me in a restaurant over there. I, had, I was over there. We were had gone over to work in Korea and Japan and took some time off to go to China and Hong Kong. And there was a lady playing a Urdu. You know what that is? A little, and some lady playing something else. And they played that one down in Georgia. <laughs> All right, that was Charlie Daniels. And uh, what a great, great interview that was. Wonderful man. Uh, we miss him for sure. Uh, we would occasionally see him at the NAM show in Nashville, and so uh, it's really not the same without him, absolutely for sure. You know, one of the things that we were hoping to accomplish in playing these songwriters not only is to reminisce and think about some of these great tunes, most of which we know in our heads and are now we're singing, um, but also just the contributions that songwriters in general give us. You know, the joy, the happiness, the sorrow, uh, dancing, you know, all of these things that these particular folks today uh, that we talked about have given us over the years is just such a blessing, I think, and such a great contribution to all of us. And the fact that we all collectively know so many of these, I think, is such a uh, testimony to their talent and to the gift that they shared with us. You know, along those lines, the lyrics of some of these songs are sometimes forgotten. Um, I would like to point out my favorite lyric uh, written by uh, Charlie Daniels. Um, no surprise, it comes from the 1964 song that Elvis recorded. Sorry, another little plug. Um, but, and I was, I, I um, wrote down the lyrics because if I don't and I do them off the top of my head, I might start singing, and you certainly don't want that. So I'm going to just tell you uh, a couple of words from the song um, uh, It Hurts Me uh, by Char uh, Charlie Daniels. It hurts me to see him treat you the way that he does. It hurts me to see you sit and cry. When I know I could be so true if I had someone like you, it hurts me to see those tears in your eyes. 
great lyrics. I mean, you know exactly what that person is feeling, and you can relate to it because so much, so many of us have been there in that position. And so, uh, what a blessing! I'm just so privileged to uh, do our little bit to continue the legacy of these great songwriters. You had to bring up Elvis again. <laughs> Uh, it's such a great episode, and I, I always love hearing stories from songwriters of where the ideas of songs came from and just kind of how they all formed. And uh, putting this podcast together, it was not a disappointment whatsoever. Um, just the staying power that these songwriter, these songs have, and they, you know, at the time they wrote what they felt or what they were going through, and still to this day, we we relate to them. And I think that that really speaks uh, volumes of music and songwriting and just how it can always, there's always something, there's always some emotion that we can all relate to. And I think it's just fantastic. And I also always love the stories of they just kind of randomly popped up and then the song existed and now we all know it. <laughs> and, um, so really enjoyed this and uh, can't wait to do some more uh, episodes on songwriters for sure. Yes, and I think we're all going to go listen to some 70s hits now because we're all just humming them in our heads and you can't escape it. They're catchy. Um, if you'd like to see any of the videos that accompany these interviews, we do have them posted on our website. You could head over to nam.org, n-a-m-m.org slash library and check out the full oral history collection there. But for us, we are done with this episode and on to the future. So we hope you tune in in two weeks to hear more. And until then... Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino, and Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org.